Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts, an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication and helping with grant proposals to receive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Harvey, director of Stanford University Press. Alan, a mathematician and computer scientist by training with 30 years of publishing experience, has spent much of his career with one foot in the digital publishing realm, going back to the very early days of online journal publishing through the Red Sage Project. He began his publishing career with Cambridge University Press, working in their offices in the UK, New York, and finally on the West Coast before coming to Stanford University Press in 2020 in 2002, where he was hired as editor-in-chief before becoming deputy director and then director in 2012. Alan, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me on. My pleasure. So how does a mathematician and computer scientist get lost and end up uh, as the <laughs> director of a, of, of a university press? Uh, dumb luck, I think, is the simplest way to say it. Um, Obviously, so I, yeah, my PhD's in mathematics. I was the first in the family to go to university. Um, so really didn't have, when I started at university, a, cl- a clear career goal. Um, by the time I got the PhD, I really wanted to be in some kind of um, uh, arts and publishing side, but had no idea how to do it. And uh, my career counselor laughed when I suggested it, and I just had the dumb luck to get the one job that was going to transition me from what I had been doing to what I wanted to do, which was actually as a mathematics editor. Um, and uh, I gave it six months, and then gave it another six months, and then another six months, and 35 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> I was about to say, are, do you have a calendar where you're like, you know, counting down to the next six months? I hope by now it's a permanent position. No, no. <laughs> that, that went after about 18 months. I mean, actually, it, it pretty much went out the window after about a week. Um, I, I distinctly remember I was uh, 
the, I, I had three weeks of intensive training because the the guy that I was working for was going out of the country for six weeks and I had to cover for him. And at the end of that first week, I was uh, falling asleep reciting the names of forms that we had to fill in. So you know, I figured I was kind of hooked then. Do you remember the good old days where going overseas meant you didn't work, you stopped working, oh. right? Like that, that, that's not <laughs> No email, no cell phone. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> so I imagine that it wasn't the forms that made you fall in love with academic publishing, although maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're just a form kind of guy. Um, but uh, can is there is there a particular moment or, you know, maybe just an experience that you had that you would say kind of you think back to and you say, you know what, this is kind of what I what I really realized that this wasn't just going to be you know a temp job, but it was going to be something that you're going to do for the rest of your life. Uh, I mean, I wake up every morning thinking that, um, which is why I've carried on doing it. But the uh, but really, I, it was very early um, because I was um, publishing in mathematics and computer science. Uh, the turnaround time for the books was fairly quick. And so I actually had in my hands the first book I signed probably within six months of starting the job. And when I actually had a copy of that book, uh, I realized I was making something and I was turning someone's idea into an object that would travel around the globe. And there was something incredibly fulfilling about that. Um, And... Uh, I, I know from conversations with others in publishing, they, they and I still get that same thrill when you, when you first pick up a book that you've signed and edited and published. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I can imagine that's a really special moment that, you know, probably stays with you for, for a long, long time. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's probably you and the and the author, right? Probably have like that that kind of wow experience, and hopefully some hopefully some readers as well. But the readers, you know, <laughs> yeah. we need to be more convincing. It, and it's a really fascinating relationship because um, you know, for authors, they do this once, sometimes two, three times in their career, and we do it every single day. Um, and so, so it, it's a fascinating relationship that we have with them, um, getting their ideas onto paper. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, that's what I always remind my, my team is that, you know, even more senior academics don't, you know, you, you kind of have to treat the book process a little bit more like early career research only because there's only so many times you're going to go through such a process in your career and well, I imagine there's a lot of similarities between different presses. Um, you know, you're not necessarily it may be slightly different from press to press. So the fact that you published either a book or two doesn't necessarily, you know, turn you into an expert um, overnight. Yeah, <laughs> we have this conversation regularly. Um, it's I, I, and I completely get it from an author's perspective. This is this is their baby. They have been working on this for years, and they are entrusting us with it. And um, part of the skill of the job is navigating their um, their natural protectiveness of what they've produced with our skill and experience in doing what we do. Right, and that can it's um, the, I, we we use the baby metaphor a lot in our business as well, and it's it's almost like you know no one hands off their baby and just 
trust blindly from the outset, right? People, people, you, you, you'll have people who come knocking in the middle of the day. You have people who might put in video cameras, um, you know, uh, without letting you know. Obviously, I'm, I'm speaking allegorically, um, but uh, you know, you, people want to make sure that their baby is well taken care of, and they will um, check in quite often. And and then, and in in many ways, that can be a good thing. But it's you know, it there is a certain amount of trust that probably needs to be put in the hands of you know, editors in order to say, well, <clears throat> I may know my subject matter and my research, but I respect your uh, expertise and domain when it comes to the actual publishing industry. And, and actually, just to go back to your early, earlier comment about traveling in the pre-internet, pre-cell phone days, um, in, in looking back through our archives and seeing, and, and certainly from my memory of, of 35 years ago, how, how I interacted with authors, um, th- there, were, there was a distance that was created because of the, the communication channels. Everything went by letter. Um, uh, I remember setting up um, trips from the UK to the US, traveling around um, you know, five or six college campuses and creating my schedule by snail mail. Um, I would write to people two months in advance to see if they were going to be available on this date. Um, and the speed of communication has now completely changed that. But I think it's also replicated on the on the other end. Um, the the interactions with authors about the the publishing process for their book was was equally lengthy. The the production schedule was the same as it is now, um, but the the communications were sporadic. <laughs> um, whereas now people don't think twice of shooting an email to ask a question; they need to know the answer today, um, and. That's kind of, it, it, to extend your baby analogy again, um, colleagues with kids in daycare around the corner from us here, you know, they're getting hourly updates on how their kids are doing with photos, with um, you know, analytics of you know, what time their kid went down, what time they woke up. Uh, we live in this data exchange age where people's uh, context is different. <laughs> yes, I know. I, without, without getting too, too personal, um... We made the decision not to, not to get our daughter a phone, and she's in elementary school. And other parents are like, "How could you not get your daughter a phone?" It's like she'll yeah. be okay. She really will yeah. be okay. You know, like Honestly, I, you know, the, we used the to phone do that. is not going to protect her. Um, you know, the phone may may do her damage. It, it most likely will not protect her. So, anyway, but uh, anyway, that's a conversation for a different time on a different subject. Uh, I was hoping that you could tell us just a little bit about kind of what your role as director uh, at Stanford University Press looks like. I know that in certain presses, directors are still actively involved in acquisitions. So I'm curious if that's something you do and what, what are some of the other things that kind of uh, fall under your, your purview? Um, I have just relinquished my acquisitions role um, as of about September of last year. Um, I've kept it going for a long time in various fields and we've just hired someone to replace me. Um, it, uh, not because, not necessarily because I, I wanted to, but it was the easiest way to expand the program because, uh, one of the challenges of trying to run the organization and do an acquisitions job is just that, uh, you, you need to be completely dedicated to the acquisitions role. You've got to be available to your authors. They need to know that you're going to be able to answer their question today, um, and not hung up with dealing with other problems. You know, that go alongside running an organization like a publisher. I mean, I have, I have uh, 
two different roles. Um, you know, one is solving problems and the other is um, setting the strategy, direction and culture for the press. Um, and problems always move upwards. So by the time it's gotten to me, it's a problem that really needs attention. Um, and it was really difficult to juggle that with the attention that I wanted to give my authors. So I've kind of reluctantly given that up. But at the same time, I, I've been accused of wearing a tool belt all the time here at work because uh, I, I trust my team implicitly, uh, but I also feel it's my responsibility to know how everything works. And that often means getting down into the weeds. Um, it's a it's a fun job where I feel I've kind of not given up anything that I've learned in thirty five years. Um, there, it's it's a slow accumulation of experiences. Every single one of them I enact every day. Wow, yeah, that's a really I, I, I like the way that you that you put that because I think that you know in a managerial role and position it's easy to kind of. Um, disconnect from what's going on and you want to i know i feel this tension it's like on the one hand i want to entirely trust my my entrust my team um, once they're trained and once they have experience to make the right decisions and i don't want to be making decisions for them especially if they're decisions that i trust them to make and probably will make better decisions than i on the other hand i don't want to be disconnected right so it's like how do you keep your finger on the pulse ear to the ground and be one of the people, but at the still at the same time, be able to turn around and say, "Well, okay, you know, th- this needs to be done differently, or we need to improve in this or that way." And that's, you know, that doesn't always make you the favorite, but I think it's important <clears throat> leadership characteristic. And, and and especially when when the organization is is relatively small, we have thirty five staff, and um, uh, one of the one of the um, qualities that I really um, treasure here is our ability to actually do things quickly. Um, to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. Um, and that, that's easiest if people are empowered to do things themselves. Um, but with the, with the staffing at this level, um, we are very splintered. Each person has sort of a unique job. We don't have multiple redundancies. Um, so you're very reliant on a single set of expertise. Um, and and I think you know, I, my role as, as manager is to make sure everything works together in harmony. And it's really difficult to do that if you don't know what everyone does. Of course. Now, you know, Stanford is obviously a, um, a world-renowned uh, university and, and institution. Um, and I'm curious to kind of hear what's unique, not just about the university, but actually more, more of more interest is the press. Um, and I guess that's, that's kind of part one is what's, what's, um, you know, what makes the press different than some of the other presses out there. Um, and aside from that kind of in what way is that a connect connected to a reflection of the university or is it entirely independent and kind of sets its own agenda, which is not related? Uh, well, to answer the second part first, we, we are an auxiliary unit of the university. I report into the provost and the press is part of the office of the provost and president. Um, and all of our staff here are regular university staff. Um, so we are, we're, we're entwined with the university. We were part of the founding of the university. In fact, when 
when the first president of Stanford was recruited, he gave four conditions of his hire. Um, and the fourth was um, was that provision be made for publishing works of scholarship um, emanating from the university. So we are uh, the very first year of the university, there was a press here on campus uh, printing monographs. Um, the university was founded in, in uh, 1892 and 1893 was our first book. Um, so so we're, we're, we're really enmeshed in, in what the university does. Um, as for what differentiates us from other university presses, um, all presses have different um, strengths in terms of the style and disciplines that they, they cover. And we all... We definitely compete, but I also like to think of us sort of fitting together like a jigsaw so that together we cover the breadth of the academy. Um, we just ha each have little pockets that we excel in. Um, and we obviously have our own um, strengths within the program. Um, you know, in, in all areas of humanities and social sciences and now in, in business and law as well. Um, the... I think what I would like people to take away as our strengths is the fact that that we we focus on the individual books. Um, you know, this is not a machine. This is not really just trying to churn out product. We are we look at each individual book, and I've taken great care with all of our staff, um, and especially with the acquisitions team, um, that that their their responsibility is to take. Uh, research and scholarship and turn it into something that people want to read um, and uh, yes that involves peer review yes that involves um, presentation to our editorial board who are made up of Stanford faculty um, so those are the commonalities that all university presses have to um, keep to um, but beyond that they've then got a manuscript and it's their job to actually uh, to to do what you're doing with your business as well, which is to look at that manuscript and say, okay, you know, does this make its point? You know, is this going to get the message across, and do people actually want and need to read it? Um, and we we uh, we emphasise that uh, all the way through the process, from acquisitions through production and th on through to marketing, and that that's I think. Uh, while not absolutely unique amongst university presses, is definitely a, a major strength of the, the team we have. And in terms of areas of focus, I mean, does it reflect the stand, the university in terms of <clears throat> having, you know, a mix of you know computer science and medical, and or is it or is it really focused on humanities, social sciences? No, they, um, and and in fact, actually, the. Uh, if you look at every university press across the country, there is sort of disparate connections between the presses and their faculty, um, mostly because of uh, the, the long-termism of publishing. Um, we, are, we are connecting with authors today who will sign a contract next year to be delivered the following year, published the year after, so, and we will then be marketing it for four or five years. Um, so, so we're dealing in, in at least you know, six-year cycles, probably 10-year and often 20 to 30. And so the evolution of a publishing program is very different than the evolution of a, of a campus and a department. Um, and our publishing program really kind of goes back to the 60s and early 70s. Um, and, 
the the evolution of the strength of Stanford in terms of of business engineering, computer science is really highlighted over the last forty years, um, and was not a feature of what the press published in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, we we've made alliances with various groups on campus. I mean, in, uh, 20 years ago, we didn't publish law. We didn't publish business. Uh, we didn't really have any many connections to sociology or the other social sciences or international relations. Um, and we've made concerted efforts to connect our program there. So now we are fairly uh, solidly representing all of the humanities and social sciences and business and law here on campus. The, the one side that we've not gotten into is, is um, STEM. Um, we have not, we don't publish in, in we, do, uh, we do connections between um, you know, history and science and connections between sociology and science, but we haven't gone flat out into you know, engineering, you know, physics, chemistry, math, computer science. Um, I would dearly love to, uh, it would be a massive investment, and um, you know, I suspect is is somewhere on the ten to twenty year radar. And also, from <clears throat> at least from my understanding of the industry, um, is harder to do. Also, because authors are not incentivized um, to write books in those fields as much. So, whereas you may be turning down a number of manuscripts, I've spoken to some science editors who say they have to actively recruit. Um, manuscripts, so it's a different. Yeah, it, 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 different the, the rate of publishing is entirely different, and and you know, as you said at the beginning, the first fifteen years of my career were in science publishing, um, and I I know what the turnaround is there, um, and it's it's very different. Um, and working from sort of an established program as I had at Cambridge, you have the critical mass to be able to put in place a, um, you know, a marketing and promotional campaign for uh, an entire list. Starting from scratch here today would be quite a heavy lift. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that's really amazed me in my chats with, with some of the university, um, pre- university publisher professionals is just – you know, despite the name, right? Meaning uh, my, my assumption going in would be like, well, it's Stanford, you can do what you want, right? Like as soon as you you slap the Stanford label on it, like you're, you're, it opens up doors around the world, but I, that's really not the case. Uh, you really kind of, I, it, it, what I've learned, and, and I'm, I guess I'm interested to hear your take on this is kind of each library has their own style and, and, and you got to know who the folks are at the different libraries and make sure that they're interested in your materials and you know, no name is, you know, I, I, it's probably helpful to have a, a name that, folk, you know, people respect and know, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're all of a sudden going to buy everything that you publish or, or, you know, or set a meeting. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, uh, publishing is a very complicated business in terms of reputation. Um, and people uh, grossly misunderstand often what a university press does, even even on their host campus. In conversations I have with faculty here who are surprised when I tell them that um, only only about six or seven percent of our books are from Stanford faculty, um, uh, except that. Uh, we've done an analysis of our peer presses, and it's the same everywhere. It's fairly typical, which is why I kind of refer to that sort of jigsaw analogy. We all fit together, um, and by by focusing on on strengths of the list, we're able to support it better, rather than um, just publishing everything that that 
happens here on campus. And and again, getting back to reputation, um, if if we had a preference for Stanford faculty, um, then the Stanford brand wouldn't actually be viewed as the um, selection criteria in the filter that it is right now. Um, yeah, but that that process um, gives people a stamp of authority, gives our books a stamp of authority. Um, and if if we were to be just an engine that published everything from campus, that wouldn't work. Um, and so there's sort of like a mutual support that presses offer um, for uh, for you know, primarily humanities and social sciences you know, across the academy. Now, I want to get into, I want to talk to you a little bit about why it can be so challenging for authors to write a book and maybe understand a little bit more about the publishing process. And I'm sure we're not going to be able to cover everything in this conversation, but we can make a dent. And I'm curious, um, first and foremost, why you think it's so difficult for authors who have spent probably most of the time years um, working on their research, developing their ideas, uh, you know, researching the literature why is it such an exhausting process or a difficult process for authors to kind of come in line with what will eventually become uh, their book? Um, because writing a book is a, is a skill. And uh, almost none of our authors have been taught how to write a book. There's no point in their academic career where they've taken a class on how to write a book. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, some of them are naturals, and we love those authors. Um, but uh, we're professionals at doing this, and so our job is to actually um, help them make that transition from um, the idea and the research into something that people want and need to read. There's a there's a huge difference between writing you know a 240 400 page book and writing a 25 to 40 page article. Um, and there's almost nothing else that an academic will write that's of that magnitude, um, other than their, their um, thesis. And again, the thesis is for an audience of three, maybe four people. And you're trying to prove that you know the material and prove that you've achieved something with your research, which is very different than the goal with a book, which is that you want someone to read it. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so that's a very particular skill and i don't expect 
our authors to have that, which is why we have people here whose role is very specifically to do that. Um, and it comes through in the peer review process, um, which is a very crude tool, but it's it's one that we use for highlighting you know, some of the big picture issues um, with a manuscript, as well as sort of a fine grain of, of you know, academic research details. Um, but the, the work that our acquisitions editors here do is to is to look at the manuscript and say, okay, what's the narrative arc in there? Um, you know, how are you bringing people into um, your argument? Um, it, 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 I, I've read, unfortunately, some really horrific manuscripts um, that that actually have fascinating ideas in them. And our job is to try and extract those ideas and put them in a form that people want to read. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I think it's a really good point about, especially about the, um, you know, thinking about your audience when it comes to the dissertation. I think this is really hard for junior scholars. It's like you get into this habit of continually needing to prove yourself, and. And, and therefore your literature review goes on forever because God forbid you, you know, leave out one source and then you get to a, you know, actually publishing your first book and they're like, no, no, you're in the big leagues now. Right. Like we trust that, you know, that not, you know, you obviously have to bring sources and you're coming to engage in a discussion with other scholars, but that's it. You're not coming to prove your worth. And I think, you know, especially early career researchers kind of get into that mentality. So they think everything is going to be like that and chopping off you know, major parts of their methodology or their literature review can be quite difficult, but, um, your average reader is not going to be interested in the history of, 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 you know, the discussion on the topic. They're going to want to know actually, what do you have to say? And is it interesting and engaging and interesting? And, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the best part of editing a manuscript is telling people what to delete. I mean, just, you know, drop chapter one, most of chapter two, and you know, hack the beginning and end off of every other chapter. And honestly, you've got a much better book in there. Um, I mean, it's, it's harder to write a short book than it is to write a long book. Um, yeah, that's 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 uh, publishing truism. What is that? Is that was it Twain who said? Yeah, um, that, <laughs> no, I would have written you a time. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. And and tell me, what is what would you say are one or two of the things that you think authors, you know, learn through the process of publishing a book? You talked about that you don't expect them to come in with that knowledge, but what is it that an author that has gone through the Stanford, um, you know, uh, process? Um, what what sort of observations or insights may they have, um, or things have they learned through that process, which they can then take with them? But there's there's things they'll have learned about us, and things that they'll have learned about their field and their writing. I mean, for their field and writing, um, they they will have learned about an audience. Um, I mean, for for most scholars, um, their only concept of an audience so far has been students. It's teaching. Um, and uh, their their engagement in writing a book is a very different engagement with an author with an audience, um, and so that's something that they they will have have to have thought about at every stage, both in the editing of the manuscript, um, right the way through to the marketing of, of it, and they'll be. Um, They'll be involved in every piece of that. So the the other side is what they learn about us, which is that we're their partner in the process and we're professionals at doing this. They have written one book. Uh, We have 150 going through production right now. Um, So we do this every day. So we have context in what you're doing that is is very different 
um, you are the expert in this in the subject and we absolutely respect that um, but there are there are many technicalities of of publishing a book that we are the experts in so so it's it's a relationship and the whole thing is just building a relationship with the author so I want I want to touch on a topic which, um, could be seen as sensitive um, and could be seen as touchy, uh, but I think it's important because I think it's a bit of an elephant in the room. Um, and because you mentioned before about you know the professionalism of your staff, and and, and I'm sure that's that's true. Um, the the publishing industry, um, especially the academic publishing industry, and some sometimes has gets a bad name or has a bad name or gets a lot of flack online. Um, and I think the reason for that is, or at least the common wisdom. And, um, is that, um, you know, there over the years, maybe publishers are certain, certain publishers are invested less in the, in the process of creation itself. Um, they are not creating the materials, right? Obviously that's the author. And then they don't share much of the revenue with the authors once the book is then published. Um, and I think this leads to this, you know, sort of image of, you know, the greedy publisher, um, I, you know, I, I know that there's obviously different kinds of publishers in academic publishing, which is a big part of this. Um, and also, you know, um, university publishers have a very unique, um, you know, kind of role where oftentimes they are not profitable. So maybe you can just, um, and these are all kind of confused statements. So maybe you could just, you know, make some clarity about the, the, the industry in general and kind of maybe um, set set us straight for exactly kind of how how it works and what what you do. Yes, <laughs> the, I know that um, when you interview, you're supposed to ask one question at a time, and I just asked you like, oh, forgive me. Yeah, I, it, there are so many differences between small aspects of the publishing ecosystem um, that I completely get that it's difficult. Um, it's difficult in most of the um, media coverage and even the discussions on campus to actually um, encompass all of the, the different flavors. Um, there's a difference between journal publishing and book publishing, obviously. There's a difference between, um, there's a difference between um, us and textbook publishers. There's a difference between us and um, uh, the New York, typically New York-based trade publishers of fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, we all, we all have different drivers, and for many of them, it, it, there's obviously a profit motive. They're corporations; they have to make money. And I I totally understand uh, the uh, the rejection of that by certain aspects of the academy, where they are creating the work and someone else is profiting out of it. Um, it's, it's a very different dynamic with the university press. Um, I can tell you we are not profiting out of it, and there is no university press in the country really that is profiting out, profiting out of it. Um, university presses um, break even if they do um, through various means of endowments, um, secondary businesses. There are, there are multiple ways that each of us you know, close the bottom line, typically with underwriting from the university, which is what we do. Um, uh, so there's no profit in it, and we're not um, gouging our authors. We're, we're trying to get their ideas out into the marketplace. Um, 
and, and it comes back to, to sort of a, a, a lack of understanding of what we actually do and sort of an incorrect comparison to the ability just to post things online. Um, yeah, we've, we've seen in the last, well, mostly in the last 10 years, but probably a longer period of that, the, the growth of, of you know, citizen journalism and online news that supposedly democratizes things, but it actually takes out uh, some aspects of a filter. Um, you can argue within news that that's a bias. Uh, that's not really the case in what we do, but we do act as a filter. Um, we we seek out what we want to publish. We have criteria that we observe you know, that includes peer review and review by our editorial board. Um, and so our, our rejection rate is more than 95%. Um, and so there's a there's a choice that goes into what we publish. If everyone were just posting their material online, then it would be the reader's choice of what to publish. And you can definitely argue that that would be empowering. However, it really does then you know, it it can be overwhelming. Um, and I think our, our if we exercise it correctly, our filtering role means that um, that we can do the best for the work that we publish um, and actually help um, spread knowledge. Um, so we filter what we what we publish. We then work on the manuscript to make it the best. Um, we then um, copy edit design typeset physically produce books and then at the end we have to deliver it into an ecosystem that's radically different than it was when I joined the publishing industry. Um, when I joined, we would literally just take a box and ship it out to a bookstore, and that was about it. Um, today, it's all about metadata. Um, and it's very difficult for uh, anyone outside of the publishing industry to slide their book into the full breadth of the distribution ecosystem that exists out there today. Um, I mean, we all struggle with keeping up with the demands of our larger online retail partners. Um, and I don't know how an individual will be able to do it. So it's it's that kind of expertise that we put into their hands. And we, we do it both by publishing and by doing publishing services. We help various people on campus to actually publish their own books. Um, and that's using the infrastructure that we have here. So it, it, we're, 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 I've, I've see us as a valuable part of the academic ecosystem and not not sort of a barnacle on the side that's uh, feeding off of them. Yeah, it, it, it sort of, you know, I, I think your point about, you know, the balance between trying to democratize ideas, which I think we all appreciate, but then having like, you know, just chaos reign, um, which can be the, the other side of that. You know, it's like anyone who's been in a large Facebook group where there's not good moderation knows how quickly that goes downhill in terms of the, you know, squabbling. And I think that, you know, one of the, in a world where everything is so easily accessible, um, the value of curation and being able to actually say, this is science and this is not, which sounds like such a basic thing, but I actually think, you know, for me, at least in the pandemic, um, that, being able to say this is science and this is not was not an easy thing to do, right? And it's like, well, <clears throat> we need folks who are trained and who have spent time and dedicated to being able to detect not only 
detect good ideas from bullshit, but all, which is also important, right? But also, um, yeah, paper mills and all the other fun stuff that's out there now. Um, but also to be able to help bring the best out of the authors who have good intentions and want to bring their research to the world. And this is something, this is an argument that I've made before, which is, which I find it to be ironic that in the not profitable sector of book publishing, we spend a lot of time working constructively with authors. And in the very profitable sector of journal publishing, we spend very little time and attention working to help authors. Um, I feel like we could, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the books can make a little bit more money and the journals could spend a little bit more time improving science, um, you know, and find a, find a happy medium somewhere in the middle. But it, I, I, I realize that, uh, it, what we do here is is a little of a little bit of an oxymoron for some people, and and I I can understand the difficulty in seeing what our business model actually is. Um, I mean, obviously, at, uh, we benefit from selling more copies of books. It's absolutely true, but we're also a mission driven organization. So, um, if that that. Uh, assessment of the resources and those resources are people as well as just plain money um, that, that assessment of resources comes in a very close second to actually the primary question which is should this be published and and uh, honestly not everything should be published um, in our assessment 95% of what we said uh, uh, delivered shouldn't be published um, and there are there are other people who can actually also um, take what we are not publishing and turn that into a good book. Um, I mean, we've all got different assessments of how to do it, and we're not we're not singular. And it, it, one of the really interesting things about what I do is is often we'll take a book that someone else has passed on and turn it into something that um, makes a huge impact and wins prizes. And the same happens the other way around. Right. Right. And I imagine there must be, you know, manuscripts that cross your desk that, you know, if you do, you know, you do have a limited number of, of, of works you can do, you probably see a lot of good stuff, which you say either, you know, we'd love to, we, we can't, or, or we'd love to, but it's not our, it's not our expertise, you know? So I imagine there's a lot of um, kind of referrals, you know, passing people down the line and, and, and also receiving referrals back. And, and as you've obviously noted in in your interviews with various other press staff and directors, we all know each other. Um, it's a community. Um, we support each other. We meet every year. Um, and so, yes, there is a lot of referral. There's a, a lot of mutual respect. Now, and w- to what degree would you say? See, this is within the academic publishing industry. To what is there any connection to the larger? publishing industry or you know fiction publishers or is it really do you is it is it enough enough to keep track of just to um, you know kind of uh, uh, be you know be with your own colleagues that, that there's not really doesn't allow much time for that I mean I have to imagine that some of the trends that affect gen- general publishing will affect you as well but um, yeah yeah it's yeah. It, it, it like any industry there are there are lots of different layers within it and we you know we we live within our layer for most of the time but we interact with everyone i mean there uh, there are uh, there are the um the international book fairs in frankfurt and london and beijing and we go along to those where we are alongside publishers of every type um and um 
we all uh, there there are similarities between the the business model i mean at, at a macro level you can you can look at them side by side and they have very similar drivers we just uh accentuate different parts of it the trade publisher um if one in ten books succeeds and the uh, that one that succeeds pays for the other nine it, it's very similar in what we do just with with different motivations um and I can tell you that you know, our our business is is underwritten by our backlist, um, and some of our backlist revenue comes from books that are ninety years old, um, and so uh, that sort of you know, accumulated weight is what covers the cost of publishing new new books. Um, so it's a it's a very similar business model, and also it's not just trans technology. I mean, the the drastic changes in technology over the last thirty years. You know, have enabled us to do things that we could never do even 10 years ago. Um, and those are trends that hit every aspect of the industry. Um, I mean, we used to ship books globally um, when now we don't need to. Um, we can print them in different facilities around the world. Um, that That's something that you know, our very small part of the industry um, you know, came came into probably a little later than we should, um, um, but now we've embraced it. Out of curiosity, how much? I mean, whatever. I, I don't know what you're allowed to share, but how much of your sales come from digital versus the print? Um, you know, part is it? Is it? And 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 is that reflective of general industry? Uh, it it is, and I think it um, it probably w- would surprise people if they started to dig down into the numbers. Um, uh, I think r- today it's roughly twenty five percent of our revenue comes from from ebooks, um, but the way that that uh, that that revenue is split further, you know, has changed a little more over the last even over the last four years, four or five years. Certainly, the pandemic. Uh, did influence uh, buying patterns. Um, obviously, a, um, a large source of our um, revenue comes from the academy itself, whether it's individual faculty or um, university libraries. Um, and when the pandemic hit and everyone was remote, uh, digital access became essential. Um, and that that pushed further a few shifts that we've been experiencing. Um, it it didn't do what I think some people outside of publishing were anticipating it would do because I I often talk to people who just say, oh, well, isn't everything digital now? No. <laughs> um, and I think it's a long way from being that because people still value the physical object of a book and it's 75% of our revenue. Um, and the few, it, obviously... It, no, no two books are absolutely identical. No two publishers are identical. So, so most of the way we look at this is really just anecdata. Um, but certainly, from my conversations with my peers and the few things that we've done here, when we've made a book, made anything available digital only, and not made a print edition, um, uh, our sales have been at what would have been twenty five percent. So. The, the, it, I don't think the audience is absolutely split, um, and there's obviously some bleed between the two of them. But for, but for, to very large measure, 
people are either print book readers or digital book readers. Um, and I think it, it, probably refining that, um, they're print book readers for one side of what they read and digital book readers for something else. Um, I know that's how I divide my own reading. Um, and, and so if you don't produce a, a print edition of something, you're unlikely to get the sales that you want out of it. Um, so it's very difficult to, to have a publisher that is one format only. You have to be both. Right. Got it. Um, let me ask you a, a final question. Um, is there, do you have a, a favorite book that you, uh, that in the history of, of, of the press that you just like, you know, would read in your own free time? A, f- a favorite book from Stanford that I would read on my own free time. Actually, um, oh, I can't show you anything on the podcast, can I? Um, the, I was going to pick up a book that I always have on my desk, which is actually The Letters of Montaigne, uh, The Complete Essays of Montaigne. Um, yeah, that was uh, from 1954, I think we published that. We have Frame's edition of Montaigne. And the reason it's on my desk right now is I have the audiobook version of it, which is nowhere near as interesting <laughs> as the print book edition. Um, the, the ability just to drop in and, and read a particular essay is, is fabulous. So that's the one I always have out on my desk. Right. Fantastic. Um, Alan, I, you know, we can continue this conversation for hours, but it's, um, I want to, I want to let you get back to, back to your job. And I appreciate all the time that you've spent with us. Is there anywhere if people want to kind of, you know, I don't know if you write anywhere on blog or, or, uh, or LinkedIn, um, but anywhere people can find more of your work. Tell people to look at our blog, our press blog. In fact, actually we have, we have two blogs, one for the digital side of the press and one for the print side of the press. Um, We're constantly posting there. I don't post as often as I should, but I, I will make a commitment now to do it for this this year. Got it. Brilliant. Um, Alan, thank you so much for, for your time. Um, I've, you know, this has been really insightful um, and engaging and, and I think you've really shown a light on kind of what behind the scenes, what it is that an academic and university publisher actually does, which is really important. Um, and, um, yeah, I hope that we are able to continue these conversations, um, you know, over the, over time. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed talking about this and I'm happy to do it whenever you want to. Thanks, Alan. Okay. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.